Okay, so glad you managed to tune in this evening wherever you are. Um, as you probably could you glimpse some of the names on the screen, you'll see it's from many parts of planet Earth. And that's rather beautiful that we can all uh, share. Also, the sense of, mm, you know, the commonality of our practice and the commonality of our, of our aspirations and, of course, of our uh, predicament. We all seem to be in these little boxes on the screen. I'm in a little box. Um, that's pretty much what like, life's about, being in a box with different colours and items inside it. Yeah. And yet within that, there can be an expression of something rather beautiful that's not about the box. We can reach out through that, through our limitations of this particular form, this country, this body, this time. You know, we can, we, something can reach across that. It's, you know, it's not just technology. It's meaning and purpose and aspiration and cooperation and friendship and so on. That's that's the human story. Well, level we're one way we're very closed in, we're rather pathetic creatures in some respects. We can't run any faster than a chicken. Yeah, we can't. You know, no, can't even match a cat for claws. We're pathetic in some respects uh, as as creatures. Yet we have this amazing capacity for uh, awareness, for ethics. Morality, loving kindness, wisdom, awareness. Uh, this is really the beauty, and it's rather strange how little this is used in general in the world. You know, it's all twisted up, and the boxes get tighter. You know, the box determining your national box, or your racial box, or ethnic box, or your gender box, or you know. <laughs> and of course, you know, it gets it gets all these things we live within. Yeah, so very important uh, how that can be so absorbing and so full of drama and uh, pain. Because when we live in boxes, there were always there's some somebody in another box who's separate. This is the great tragedy of human beings. We we uh, see other people essentially as separate just because of what sense consciousness does, because our eyes see something that's an object out there, and um, so we find this and she's that, you know, separation. And clearly, that's what sense consciousness does, uh, but then we can say, well, it's impossible for me to live separately from everything else, because where's, where's the edge of my mind? It's not broken into bits and pieces. I can make it that way, but actually it is aware of feeling, perceptions, sensations, um, which are shared. You know, I'm, I'm aware of something around me. I'm not separate from what I'm aware of, right? You know, so the object of my awareness is really something I'm in relationship with. Or, you know, you can't, you're aware of something. That's called consciousness. Uh, be aware of something um, and yet we take the items that arise within consciousness as being like uh, um, 
something separate from 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 us. <laughs> you know? But they're not separate from awareness, are they? You can't have something happen without being aware of it. So nothing is really separate from awareness. And including ideas of yourself. Uh, so this when we really base it on on real strong commitment to awareness right there can be awareness of a thought awareness of what i think about you awareness of what i want for you uh, awareness of sight sounds um yeah this all kind of there's no there's no um, edge to that forms arise within that and if anything arises within that flows up and it's moving along and it passes through that's the baseline isn't it and yet there's this sense of being restricted essentially our practice is to free that from that restriction restricted sense as long as we get restricted then we feel frustrated we get anxious we get frightened we get depressed we get stuck we feel contracted uh, we feel opposed um, lost, I'm separate from you, and so on. And so this is suffering. So here's a reading. This is the Book of the Tens, the Anguttara Nikaya Book of the Tens, the 81st Sutta. On one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Kampa on a bank of the Gagara Lotus Pond. The Venerable Bahuna approached the Blessed One paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Bhante, from how many things is the Tathagata released, disconnected and freed? He deals with a citta unrestricted, unrestricted awareness, or you could say a mind free from edges, boundaries, consciousness with no edges to it. Bhante is because the Tathagata released disconnected and liberated from ten things that he dwells with a chitta with a heart free from restrictions what ten he is released disconnected unfettered by freed from form freed from perceptions free from sankharas volitional formations volitional activities free from consciousness he dwells with a jitta unrestricted he is released detached and freed from birth old age death suffering defilements he dwells with a jitta unrestricted and unrestricted awareness just as a blue red or white lotus flower though born in the water and grown up in the water rises up above the water and stands unsoiled by the water even so bahuna is because the tathagata is released disconnected liberated from ten things that he dwells with the mind and awareness a jitta unrestricted so this final image you know the lotus it's it's usually a few occasions the sense of lotus is very much rooted in the mud uh, of a pond and then it, but it rises up through the water and it 
as it opens up, it's, it's unstained. So this is the image of the Buddha, who certainly seemingly established in a physical form, something very earthy, mud, and rises up through the, the flow of mind stuff, you know, and then he rises above that and opens. So this is where description of the chitta, which um, as we're born, with birth the jitta is embodied, comes into a body. The jitta feels it's inside a body, you know, and it feels the body is mine, the body is me. You know, the Tathagata recognizes this is just uh, an experience that's happening to the jitta. Uh, jitta feels that the mental stuff, immaterial phenomena, water, are what I am, are mine, are pressing in on me. The Tathagata rises up through that and opens out of these experiences, which is essentially, well, there's a whole list of them here, ten here, but you could summarize it as the five aggregates, called the aggregates affected by clinging. So, so if we really kind of try to understand why why this particular coinage occurs. There's no other teacher who talks about the five aggregates. They talk about sense bases, they talk about desire, they talk about hatred, loving kindness. Only the Buddha, no, no, other, no other teacher talks about the aggregates. You know, it's a specific formulation the Buddha presents. And well, it's not easy you know, we think, what's he talking about? Five aggregates, sights, sounds. Um, these are the ways that chitta uh, experiences in its contracted state, in its, in its unawakened state. It experiences form. Now, if we uh, contemplate what does form mean directly, you know, it's a sense of what there's, uh, you know, some kind of pressure, something constrains. It's a pressure. It's a certain resistance to it. Form, uh, but if you contemplate form internally, your own experience of being present within a form, for a start, you realise well, it's that experience is neither male nor female, old nor young. It's just the experience of pressures, uh, a sense of pressure, a sense of warmth, a sense of solidity. That arises. Yeah. So when we're talking about form, we're not looking at the external visual form, but the direct experience of form as awareness, as it meets awareness. And this is talked about as the four elements like earth, solidity, heat, uh, movement, um, fluidity, and so forth. And so what's that? Well, it's not a person, is it? Once you begin to get that realization, because it's something you can do fairly easily, you directly experience that you can call it your body, but you know, that's something you add to it. You could say, you know, it's big or small, but that's something you add to it. Actually, what you experience is a flow of particular phenomena. Um, they have a degree of solidity, 
fluidity, warmth, movement to them, pressures. Uh, there's not a lot of self in that. And that's why the Buddha presents it. Because, you know, this body thing is the easiest object we can find. And once you begin to see that the visual body is just a visual appearance that you can see with your eyes, but that is not what you experience with awareness. You experience this sense of elemental properties moving around. And that's quite a shift, because once you see that, you also recognize that this form experience is actually constantly like a fountain. None of those experiences stay static. They're all in various kinds of pulses and movements and pressures. And they begin to, as your awareness contacts that, then you also come into contact with the quality of the agreeable or disagreeable. Yeah. Things are slightly better, this is more pleasant, that's more pleasant. And the, the chitta is very attracted to that. When I say attracted, it's not delighting in it in, in a uh, greedy way because some of the experiences of feeling are rather unpleasant. But still, the chitta is mesmerized by feeling. Feeling is the important thing. It goes to that and it gets highly activated by that. Uh, and clearly some of this feeling can arise in contact with these form experiences. Um, the degree of energy in them. Chitta feels too, it's too intense or it's not, not strong enough so it feels uncomfortable. Um, but primarily it always comes down to mental feeling. When I say mental feeling I mean the way that we immediately interpret experience, most immediately, involuntarily. And so we experience this as too intense, unpleasant, can't manage it, chitta. And that can be moderated by expanding your chitta's awareness over an experience of uncomfortable feeling. It's the intensity of it and the contractedness of it that gives rise to an intensification of mental agitation and you get bound up in it. The more intense it gets, the more the chitta feels locked. So, and then of course, much, a lot of feeling comes through called perception, which means we remember something, uh, we notice something, something strikes us. Oh, that looks bad. Oh, that looks terrible. Oh, that's really worrying. Oh, I don't like the look of that. Uh, so we get that unpleasant feeling. Um, and this is very primary. We're reading, or the chitta is reading all the time. Is this agreeable or disagreeable perception? That's what gives it its direction. It wants to find a direction, and the direction is get away from the unpleasant, get to the pleasant. If you find the unpleasant, then try to defend yourself from it or avoid it. Now, this is where perception and feeling, which are these also aggregates, constrict the chitta. They, they get the chitta locked in and start to get it stirred up. 
And the stirring up gives rise to this other experience called sankara, which means certain intentions and volitions and aims and purposes and strategies start bubbling up. How do I get out of this? How can I stop that? Shift this way, that way. Uh, which yeah, it, it makes the mind very restless. This then becomes this experience of the restless, shifting, but restricting flow of phenomena becomes the theme of consciousness. So we pick up that and we feel very much bound up in a restless, shifting, uncertain, anxious world or something that means we've got to make something happen. We plan for the future to make it better. Uh, we try to uh, find ways in which we won't be affected by things. So it sets up a paradigm where we feel very much in this shifting but restrictive experience. Because, of course, what isn't obvious at first is that these volitional tendencies, these actions, don't actually take us out of the problem at all. They maybe move it around, stir it up. Yeah, but they don't take us out of it. So, for example, if we have a sense of anxiety, then we can feel anxious about this experience, uh, and we settle that, or we don't. Then we feel anxious about something else. We feel anxious about ourselves. Um, are we doing good enough? Uh, and then maybe we can change even the modes of volition. So it goes from feeling anxious to feeling. Uh, or I should be doing more and helping people, or feeling also oh, I need to look after myself, or you know, but always it moves from one movement to the next. You don't get to a still place, and this constant movement of the chitta gives rise to the sense of being trapped or bound up in a situation that continually needs to be responded to and tweaked and adjusted and repelled and figured out and planned and then so you're in a kind of living dynamic prison yeah uh, so the average person will assume well how do i get out of this or how can i make it better do some more <laughs> now what does the buddha do to not feel so trapped since he obviously lived in a world where there was distinct uh, unpleasant experiences. There was, uh, he had disease, he got sick quite a bit of the time, he had a bad back for most of his life. Um, all kinds of people coming to see him, there were problems to solve, there were monks misbehaving, so concerns, there were complaints, and he had to deal with that. People trying to kill him, his own cousin trying to kill him seven times, sending people with arrows and bubbling boulders down on him. <laughs> so, you know, okay. Um, so, you get the message. Basically, the Buddha was not living in some kind of cloud nine, floating on air. He was living on the earth with what human beings experienced in some form or another. How does he, how is he not really being restricted? How is he not, if he's, if he's had, somebody's trying to kill him, why isn't he walking around with a bodyguard? Why isn't he calling the police? Why isn't he in a state of paranoia? 
Yeah. Why is it when he's sick and dying, even that he, in that state of dying of colic and dysentery, is lying there saying, "Well, body's fading out. Has anybody got any questions?" Clearly, not particularly bowed down by that. And then, as he finishes his ability to speak, then his mind moves through these jhanas and how does that? You know, he clearly was not restricted by death. I think the short thing to to say is because of not doing. We can perhaps recognize and put effort into doing quite a bit to uh, change our situations and we can certainly move things around in this particular scenario of problems and aging and sickness and death and conflict and people misbehaving and things needing to be dealt with and not feeling so good and having certain inner psychological stuff happening that I wish wouldn't be keep happening. Why am I so nervous or anxious? Why am I so obsessed? Why am I this, that and the other? What can I do? Yeah. And we might find things we can try to do around any of that. Um, the process that the Buddha is perfected was to do just enough to enable non-doing. Rather than doing more, doing less, actually. And it took quite a lot of effort to do less because you have to resist all those uh, pushes and pressures and craving and want to be better, I want to feel better than this, I'd like to be happier than this, I'd like to uh, live in a more agreeable situation than this. There's a lot of pressure to make things change into something more agreeable. Now, is that, that's not wrong, uh, but it is restricted. Mm. Since, you know, you can't do anything about aging, sickness, death. You can't do much. You can't do anything about form, feeling, perception, consciousness. You know, you can't do anything about those. You can't say, let me have no form, uh, let me have no feeling, let me have no perception. You can't, or let me just have nice ones. You know, what, you know they can contain different decorations. You know, this perception is better than that perception, but you still have a perception of some kind. You'll still be impacted by that and meet it and be activated by it. Uh, we're often meeting what we imagine other people see us as. We have a perception of ourselves is probably the major perception that bothers us. It sits there, the perception of oneself, of feeling, well, you know, this and that. Is that good? Generally, for most people, it's not good, the perception of themselves. And there's a very um, interesting reason for that. Because the perception of self 
always hinges around doing. How well you're doing. Um, are you doing enough? Um, have you done the right thing? What should you do? What could you do? What would you need to do to... You're not really doing enough to make yourself something other than this. You're stuck in this. What should you do? And many of our responses and actions are quite compulsive. The compulsiveness and the repetitiveness of certain actions establishes their imprint in the heart. Okay, obvious example, say, you know, say I smoke cigarettes, then I become a smoker. The perception of me is I smoke. Now, I don't know how many cigarettes you smoke, but you cannot be, you know, you cannot spend more of your day smoking than not smoking. If you smoked 100 cigarettes a day, for most of the day you would not be smoking. Because how long does it take to smoke a cigarette? But what establishes itself is those perceptions based upon activity and compulsive activity. Now maybe you worry. Maybe that's your thing. So we go, I am a worrying person. Perceptions create myself and the more compulsive they are, the more firmly established as this is what I am. But the compulsiveness is generated through constantly acting in a certain way and that action, the actions, the psychological actions, the mental actions, create the impression this is what I am. Say I'm a, a writer or a, uh, then this is what I am because I write. Yeah. I'm a teacher, this is what I am because I teach. So that gives you some sense of identity that then, you know, you want it to be a comfortable, secure, or something wants that to be okay. And maybe if it's a social identity that it's, it's well received or it's not objectionable. So it requires a constant obsessive quality to make it right. Therefore, that obsessiveness imprints it very deeply in one's awareness. And then you struggle with it, or you try to improve it, or you try to get rid of it. You're putting more action and energy into that perception of yourself. Yeah. You're trying to improve yourself, change yourself, concern yourself. You're putting more effort and energy into that same pattern. So that becomes bigger. You put more energy into it. The more you don't want it, the bigger it gets. Because you're putting energy into it. The more you concern yourself with it, the bigger it gets because you're putting energy into it. The more compulsive it is, the bigger it gets and the more it becomes yourself. Yeah. And in all that, what is not noticed is non-doing. You've probably spent most of the day not killing anyone. I imagine none of you killed another human being today. Probably you didn't even kill a cat, dog, or maybe even a fly. Did you notice that? The non-killing? <laughs> the non-stealing? The non-lying? The non-violence? The 
pretty important. Imagine if everybody did that, did not do harming. Would that be a significant feature in human experience? Wouldn't the non-doing of harm be incredibly significant? And you did it. Do you notice that? No. We notice what we're embedded in. And we're embedded in actions. Not refraining from actions, but doing more actions. This is why, very simply speaking, the important focus that we're aiming for is to aim towards the end of action. Where the non-doing, you could say. Because the non-doing is very open and spacious. So you look at it in ethical terms, it's fairly, you can at least consider that. Now when we th maybe think of non-harming, well, so what, I didn't harm anybody, but notice the feeling or the felt experience of the absence of violence. When you focus on the nervous system, your mind when it's in a state of non-violence, it's rather peaceful, open. It's not resisting anything. It's not taking issue with anything. It's not manipulating anything. The mind of uh, truthfulness, it's not distorting anything. Now, that quality gives you a, a handhold on what liberation means. It means liberation from all these compulsive actions and the compulsive actions that themselves may only be one aspect of our experience, but they become the definition of myself. I don't define myself by what I'm not doing. I define myself by what I am doing. But whatever I am doing is never finished. It's always this and then that and then this and then that and then this and then that. Now, if we touch into that non-doing quality, linger in it, settle into it, get the chitta to really settle into it, There'll probably be a certain sense of deepening and you will start to meet or experience more fundamental compulsions. So restless, needing to do, you know, kind of a, a nameless agitation of some kind or another. This is the place where you begin to meet what are called acquisitions or latent tendencies or residues. And it's there that uh, you keep relaxing and widening and spreading awareness to not act upon them. And this means that the, this energy is fundamentally released from activations. It's called the ending of karma. Now all these aggregates 
are essentially actions. Now it's very rough or dynamic. As I've said, even the most apparently substantial of them, the form aggregate, is a constant process of awareness contacting different qualities of solidity, fluidity, heat, and they're all playing together. Form is actually not a substantial thing. It's, it's a flexing, flowing experience. And that's the most substantial of the lot. So we begin to recognize feeling, or well, what feeling? Feeling flickering, you know, perceptions, um, impressions, mental formations, mental movements, mental volitions, a quivering, uh, you know, consciousness constantly is a sight, a sound, a thought, an impression coming in and in and in, constantly transferring data that is never the same. One mind moment, the next mind moment is different. I don't know how long a mind moment is, but, you know, it's a constant blip, 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 blip of impressions, isn't it? That's all, these are all actions. The aggregates are not entities, they're actions. And they don't go anywhere apart from round and round. This is why it's said this release is through disinterest, dispassion around actions. That's a lovely um, phrase that's used several times in the sutta. It's the jitta. He inclines his jitta away from the aggregates. He's just no longer interested in playing with this stuff, figuring it out, getting mesmerized by it, getting obsessed with it, and so on. He turns the jitta away from that to this is the deathless. This is the peaceful. This is sublime, the stilling of actions, the relinquishment of acquisitions, habitual, residual energies, the destruction of craving, which is the craving for something to have or something to do or something to, the craving for something to be solid. The craving to have a solid self, the craving to have a future, the craving to have a solid world, the craving to have things figured out, the craving to get to the end of something. You know, destruction of that. There is no end. There is no solid to arrive at. The, the destruction of craving, dispassion, the heat. Fire goes out, ceasing, Nibbana, the unrestricted jitta, no longer activated, no longer generating activations. Um, the aggregates are actually four experiences that the jitta concocts out of this out of this experience of being embodied in consciousness. It generates these particular interpretations and feelings and so forth. It spins them out and it's like a spider spinning out this aggregates from its own belly, 
like the spider pulls out a web and runs around and it jitter runs around on the web of the aggregates like the spider runs around on the web that's come from the, her or his own belly and been woven together but when there is a seeing of the inadequacy of this the futility of this the um the, the not going anywhere of this the, its inability to create anything solid the passion goes where the passion goes the volitional tendencies released stilling of sankara destruction of craving relinquishment of habits acquisitions habitual tendencies dispassion liberation this is why the, the, the targeter dwells with unrestricted awareness he is no longer activated no longer stirred compulsive obliged pinned down by these experiences it said to Tathagata still the aggregates manifest because the jitta is still in this mortal form so still the jitta still presents the experience of, of uh, sense realm body and so forth and for the Tathagata obviously it can experience things beyond the sense realm the fine material realm the formless realms consciousness can shift through these different realms but still in some ways awareness still contacts those experiences but is no longer dazzled by them confused by them trapped by them because it understands them for what they are shifting ephemeral and it's found the place of the non-resistance non-craving and non-confusion therefore it is released now if we come into our own experience as I suggested with the meditation you, know, you just get the impression you know, what are you in What's the feeling like of being in something? I'm in a community. What's that? Uh, a sense of being in something that you relate to and seek, search for feedback from. I'm in a job and I want to know how I'm doing. I'm in, a, you know, I've got a family and I want to feel I'm doing the right thing. I'm in a position. I want to make sure it's okay and am I doing all right? You know, we get so configured in these what we're in. And how does that configuration feel? I guess it probably probably it's, it's got a certain unsatisfactoriness to it. It's not all bad, and yet there's things that are not. No, not saying it's bad, but there's the sense of being restricted by it. Can you get to the feeling of the quality of restriction is the boundary of yourself? your apparent self that's where you sense yourself being met by something and you know defined by it and maybe confused by it or um, contained by it but that experience arises 
within awareness. Now, if we know, if we don't want to change it, if we're not trying to work it out, if we're not um, trying to improve it or get rid of it, that action ceases. Awareness then begins to open. Well, it's just this. It's just this. It's just this. This is feeling. It's just just an impression. It's just it's this. Just this. There's no passion in it. So this is what the Buddha is talking about, or my my reading of it. How to dwell like the lotus. Definitely mud. Definitely water, the mud of the earth, the mud of form, the mud of body, if you like, materiality, the water, the flow of moods and emotions and ideas, mental impressions, and then definitely in that, and yet also opening. This is just this. This is just this. Not restricted by it. Not locked to it. This is just this. Mm. Yeah, so, however that is, you know, we have our social self, we feel we belong to a, a country or a society that uh, goes through upheaval, as is not unusual. Uh, we're living in a situation with this pandemic restricting everybody's lives. We live in personal circumstances, you know, friends and relatives, maybe somebody's dying. Or having, you know, certainly the things challenging, we live with and all that. Then you get to the place where you feel held by it, pressed by it, urged by it, struggling with it. There's the edge of yourself. Arising within awareness. Don't do anything about it. So your awareness will expand when it's no longer activated. Its nature is to to open. Then there can be a release from suffering. Pause there for today.